Good morning. On the, on the way to church this morning, my wife and I were talking about uh, what's going on today, and it struck me that the text that uh, I'm going to probably talk way too fast through, because it's a lot, uh, The last time I shared out of this text was back in the day when this church kind of descends from several churches I taught at the hop. Uh, 23 years ago, I think it was. So, and and my notes, which I found because there's this thing called Biblia Do for those of you that don't carry a Bible. It used to be a thing like, well, my Bible's bigger than your Bible. And so you'd get like the family Bible and you'd walk into church to show how pious you were. You'd have this thing about this big, right? Carry it in a backpack. And, but the thing about having a Bible and a cover is that it gets filled with Biblia do. That's all of these different things that you collect. Announcements from eight years ago, inserts, uh, you name it, right? And I actually found uh, the hop welcome card from our first visit when I shared this message, which was 15 minutes long. And I know it was, well, it was less than 15 minutes because I know it was less than 15 minutes because we used to have a light at the back of the hop that was a stoplight. And it had a big green. And then when you got to 10 minutes, it would turn yellow. And then if you got to 15 minutes, we were told you'd be cut off. So that was it. Uh, that's not going to happen today. First off, this is going to be 15 minutes because I'm going to cover a fair amount of ground. But I'm going to do it quickly. Uh, and it features uh, a, a profound person of the Bible, uh, a man who uh, arrives on the scene. This is 9th century BCE, before the Common Era. Uh, I'll get to that. Um, but he also makes an appearance in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, at Jesus' transfiguration. He's in the Seder, so, which has been handed down for thousands and thousands of years in Jewish tradition. He makes an appearance in that. So, I mean, he's a person of note. So, all that to say, I'm rambling. Let me get to it. Welcome all to the next installment of Liminal's Power of a Good Question, right? I'm Brian. I'm one of the faces, and I have a lot more face than the rest of our teaching team members uh, that you'll see up here. Uh, I'm here for you also online. Welcome. Um, So far, we've had quite the assortment of good questions, right? Um, Before I revisit the past, I'd like to extend to my fellow teaching members my sincerest apologies for this list I'm going to read off here quickly. Uh, If I messed up your question, I'm sorry, uh, but here it goes. Here's a close approximate of the sampling of what we've had. And I think I'm the last one in the line, so that's why I did this. Do you also wish to go away? Was a question. Who told you that you were naked? That's a really good question. And, you know, always the biggest fear as a speaker that you go, oh my gosh, I forgot my clothes. Um, (laughs) Who is Jesus to you? Why is it that you ask my name? Do you still see or under, do you still not see or understand Why worry? Can any of you, by worrying, add an hour to your life? And why are you afraid? Um, These questions are all worthy of pondering, right? Some are provocative, some are evocative. None of them are pejorative, right? There's a mix here. And as sometimes the case with good questions, there's no definitive answer, 
And that's purposeful. We didn't want, we wanted you to be thinking of it. Just like a book, uh, and I love books and movies, this is a little quirk of mine, that don't have an ending. And a movie that doesn't wrap up real pretty or a book that doesn't wrap up real pretty because I love the fact that days later I'm still thinking about it, sometimes weeks or years. Or every time I see the book sitting on my shelf, I go, ooh, it just pierces my heart because I don't know. And there's a couple of uh, uh, writers that they've written the first or second episodes of a trilogy and they still haven't gotten to the third one after like 15 years. And it just makes me crazy, right? <laughs> but that to me is the essence of a good question. So our hope is, is that, that at the end of the book or the movie, you're going like this. Our questions are, what? That's not an ending, right? We hope they're with you. As always, you can revisit the series or see for the first time the individual presentations on our app. So my question for today is this. What does God sound like, right? It's a little provocative. It's not even specifically taken, well, it's taken from Scripture, but it's not said like that. But I asked Catherine, who leads our teaching team, and she said, that's fine. So there you go. <laughs> For most of us, we do not have a specific uh, breakdown of what God sounds like. If you say that God specifically has spoken to you and, in, and said something like, well, hello, Mike. I'd like to tell you about this. And of course, God would have a really posh English accent. Uh, <laughs> If that, if that happened, Mike, I'm looking right at him, please come tell me afterwards at the conversation because I'd like to hear more about that because that just doesn't happen very often. Um, in search of the answer to the question, I'm going to take you back to the ninth century, uh, to the Hebrew specifically, uh, Hebrew scriptures, specifically the book of First Kings. A summary, right? First Kings, it's after the death of King Solomon who ruled over the Jewish people uh, when the kingdom then split in half, right? We had Israel to the north, uh, probably one of the, the strongest uh, uh, sections of that would have been Lake uh, Genesaret, if I'm saying that right, or known as uh, uh, Galilee, right? Judah to the south uh, got the temple, right, and the capital of Jerusalem. Uh, so the, the north is Israel, south is Judah. Uh, there was a succession of kings. The, the southern kingdom wound up being much more stable, of course, God didn't want the Jews to have kings. He was king, right? And so, but they clamored for a king, and, and some were good, some were not so good. Israel remained, or uh, Judah remained fairly stable. Israel, on the other hand, nah, not so stable. There was a successions of kings in the north, none of them with the last name of Snow. Each one was, thank you for laughing, little Game of Thrones humor there. Each one worse than the next until we land on the king where today's story starts, King Ahab. How bad was he? <laughs> well, in 1 Kings 16.30, it says this. Ahab, son of Omri, Omri, I'm probably messing that up, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Yes. So he sets the standard, Right? <laughs> Which says a lot, because this was a chaotic, violent time. Ahab continued and added to the evil of the policies of his predecessors. Boy, that sounds familiar. With the top of the list, front and center, was the worship of other gods in direct disobedience of Torah and the Deuteronomy. Oh, gosh, that word. I put it in there, and I thought, I'm not going to say it. It's from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomic code. 
In other words, paying attention to what it said in the book of Deuteronomy. Ahab married a Phoenician princess. You may have heard of her. That, the name gets thrown out all the time. Jezebel, who was a worshiper of the sun and storm god, Baal. I mean, Baal had a lot of places he liked to play as a, as a false god, but those were his two main ones, the sun and storm god. So together, this king and queen gathered false prophets of Baal around them as well as hunted and killed true prophets of Israel. The true god of Israel, by the way, and the prophets of Israel, eh, they weren't so happy about this, uh, to say the least. Elijah first appears in Kings, 1 Kings 17.1 with no backstory. He just arrives, right? His name, we understand, means Yahweh is God or Jehovah is God. So his name is a strong indicator of his profession, of his occupation. He confronts Ahab, identifies himself as a servant of the true God of Israel, and tells the king that there's no dew or rain for several years, which is a bit of a slam, a little backhanded slam against Baal because he was the storm god. So this idea that we're cutting off not just the rain, but even the dew itself, which in Ventura is just not even possible, right? <laughs> That's how my succulents survive. Because it's survival of the fittest in our garden, right? You either live on your own or you die. <laughs> After the confrontation between the prophet and the king, the God of Israel tells Elijah to get going and hide in a ravine, right? Where he drinks the water of the stream, is fed by ravens, bread, meat, two times a day, morning and evening. Elijah stays up for a while, uh, stays there for a while until his water source dries up. Then he tells God, uh, God tells him, go to the region of Sidon, stay there, which there's a connection because the king of Sidon is where Jezebel came from, but let's, let's just go on. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Elijah goes, lives uh, there, uh, the widow feeds him, uh, her son dies, Elijah raises the son from the dead, you know, prophet of God kind of stuff, <laughs> but just you wait. First Kings 18. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah, being a good prophet, presented himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 each, and had supplied them with food and water. If you don't pick up on it, Obadiah is a good guy, right? A good human in a very hard position because he stands right next to this king. Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and the mules alive so we do not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover and one went this way, Ahab going in one direction, and Obadiah in the other. So, little side note, if you're not convinced about kind of the evil, I mean, almost like Dr. Evil level that was Ahab, right? Uh, if you weren't convinced by what was said earlier in 1630 that Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the lives of the Lord than any of those before him, then these couple of verses should absolutely convince you, right? Ahab is king. And if you had a list of things that uh, made somebody a good king, at the top of that list would have to be how that, uh, that ruler 
cared for the subjects beneath him, right? In this text, it says that he doesn't even care about the subjects. The two things he cares about, right, are his horses and his mules. No mention of the fact that there is a supreme famine raging in this region because it's an agrarian society, right? Aforementioned, dew, lack thereof, and rain means no crops grow, no crops grow, people starve to death. But that's not on his mind. He's worried about the horses, the mules. What a guy. All right? Ahab is a bad king. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Just think about this moment. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord, Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master Elijah is here. And Obadiah responds, What have I done wrong? Asked Obadiah. Hold on. Obadiah asks an interesting question here. What have I done wrong? It's a strange follow-up, right, to his bowing to the ground. Before I move on. This next set of passages, according to the esteemed scholar Robert Alter, we've used some of his texts. He made an amazing translation of the Psalms. So he wrote a book called The Art of the Biblical Narrative. He actually, he's written a lot of books, but that's the one I'm going to talk about right now. He's the professor of uh, comparative literature at Berkeley, Cal Berkeley. Um, He writes that the following exchange between the prophet Elijah and Obadiah is that of... uh, contrastive dialogue, right, where differentiation between two people is brought out by the contrast in what they say. Hebrew as a language is confining in terms of trying to, uh, to give specific traits to people. It's pretty dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. And so the writers going back, you know, I mean, going back thousands of years in this text, they constructed this to show the difference between these two men. Right between this prophet of the Lord and Ahab's right-hand man. So I'm going to read it really quickly, see if you can find the difference. What have I done wrong, said Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to put to death? As surely as the Lord our God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not someone to, sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or a kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear that they could not find you. But now I tell you, tell me to go to my master and say, You tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet your servant have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, that I did what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I had a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here? He will kill me. You can imagine the king looking at Obadiah and thinking when he comes to him and says, I've found Elijah. How, after so long, do you know where he is? Hmm? Hmm? No wonder he tells Elijah, he will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will present myself to Ahab today. There's a contrastive language. You get all of this dialogue, right, from Obadiah. So many words, right? Elijah, you get one sentence. 
It's hard kind of not to imagine that he didn't say this over his shoulder when Obadiah finished. All right, I'm on my way. See you. All right? I'm about the business that God has sent me up on, right? He is on a mission from God, and he plans to resolutely fulfill it. And off Elijah goes. Let us consider for a moment the job of the Hebrew prophet, right? The prophet is a person, not a microphone. He's endowed with a mission, with the power of a word not his own, that accounts for his greatness, but also with temperament, concern, character, and individuality. As there was no resisting the impact of divine inspiration, so at times there was no resisting the vortex of his own temperament. The word of God reverberated in the voice of a man. And that's from the rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, fantastic writer. At the very start of his book, The Prophets, Rabbi Heschel writes, this book is about some of the most disturbing people who have ever lived. Think about it. I mean, as a job description, you're speaking for the Almighty, for the Lord, but you're a human being. And yeah, you're set apart, but you have to imagine that it had to also be a pretty lonely existence, right? Um, Jeremiah says, you know, because of you, I sat alone. You can imagine that most prophets, not a whole lot of fun to hang out with, right? Because they were there to call people to account. But they also had their own personalities, their own ways of doing things. And when I say that Jeremiah uh, was, uh, made that statement, he also liked to be alone, probably because he didn't have to bring this message that God had given him to give and that he could, his mind would be quiet. But more about that in a little bit. Their job was to pass on the very word of God, to call humanity to account. The prophet speaks to the people for God. They take actions for God. No doubt they were very much shaped by their vocation, right? But I want to say this again. They were all individual humans with individual personalities, emotions, desires, fears, such, such as a set-apart life had to be often a lonely one. Elijah turns from Obadiah, moves on because God has told him that he has a king to see. So 1 Kings 18 through 16 through 19. You'll note that there's no like NIV up there or any other citation of scripture. That's on me. I want to tell it. So I've rewritten it, right, in my own words by following the text. It's not a translation, but it does follow the text. And I challenge you to, you know, go to whatever translation you're thing and read it. If you haven't read it lately, it's, it, I'm not adding or subtracting from the story. I just really wanted to simplify the language for the issue of pace. I encourage you to open it up and take a look at it soon. So sit back now and focus on this amazing story from 1 Kings. So Obadiah went to the king of Israel, Ahab, and told him that Elijah was back. So Ahab saddled up and rode out to confront Elijah, right? In our days, like an old-time Western movie, right? I, I just have this vision of these two guys coming together in the center of the desert, you know? <laughs> the king this way, the prophet this way, right? Marching toward each other. I kind of always thought Elijah looked like Wilfred Brimley, if you, if you remember. <laughs> Thank you for some of you. You can Google that, and you'll see what I meant, right? 
When he saw him, the king says, is that you, troublemaker? Elijah told him, look, I didn't make this trouble. You and your family did. It's all on you. You have abandoned God and chosen Baal in his place. Let's have this out once and for all. On top of Mount Carmel, call the people of your kingdom, bring them there and your 450 so-called prophets of Baal, right? And while you're at it, let's throw in another 400 prophets of that other god you follow, the fertility goddess Asherah, the one who loves to dine with your wife. They can watch too. So Ahab did just that. With the 450 prophets of Baal on top of the hill and the people from all over Israel watching, Elijah asked them a simple question, who is your God, then follow him. If Baal is your God, right, follow him. If the Lord is your God, then follow him. No one answered. Elijah said, I am the last of the prophets. There is one of me, me against 450 of Baals. Let's see how this works out. Get two bulls, bring them up here. Baal's prophets can pick which bull they want. They can butcher the bull, place the pieces of meat on the stack of unlit firewood. I'll take the other bull and do the same. You guys call the name of your God, and I will call the name of the Lord. Whichever is God who answers with fire is God. All the people shouted their approval. Huzzah! Can I get a huzzah? Huzzah! Thank you. Elijah told the prophets of Baal, there's a lot of you guys, so you guys go first. So they started. From morning until noon, they shouted for Baal. They screamed his name, right? Light the fireball. That sounds odd, doesn't it? That sounds like a cocktail. Don't ever drink anything that somebody lights on fire first. I'm just saying. That's a different, sorry. From morning until night, they shouted Baal. They screamed his name, implored him to respond. Light the fireball. As they yelled, they danced around the altar they had made. After watching all morning, Elijah began chipping at them. This is straight out of the text, by the way. I'm not, I'm not making this up. You called that yelling? I can barely hear you. Is Baal really a god? Maybe he's on vacation. Or maybe he's just too busy. And this is actually from the New Jewish Bible. Maybe he's on the potty. Which I always think of like a dad escaping with his newspaper to the one room where he can gain privacy, right? That's where Ball is. Like, what's this? You know? Maybe he's taking a nap. Or maybe he needs to wake up. So they started yelling more and cutting themselves. And they danced and milled about. And they did this until after three, the time of the evening sacrifice. Hours upon hours had passed. Still nothing. There was no response from Ball. Nothing. Nada. Not in the text. Then Elijah called out to the crowd who was watching. Come and watch. He repaired the altar of the Lord, right, that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, right, for the, children, uh, the tribes of Israel, the tribes of Jacob. He builds it up around the trench. Uh, he, uh, let's see here. Oh, of Jacob, yep. He dug a ditch around the altar. The ditch could hold about 24 pounds of seed. So, good-sized ditch. He placed firewood on top of the altar. Then he cut up the pieces of the bull. Then he said to the people, get four of the large, and they believed these would be uh, cisterns, probably like what Jesus turned water into wine, good-sized cisterns of water, 
big jars of water, and uh, he told them to pour the water on top of the meat, on the wood, and the stones themselves. And he asked them to do this not once, not twice, but three times. The meat, the wood, the altar were soaked. The trench was overflowing. Then he prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then this remarkable thing. Then fire fell and burned up the meat, the wood, and the very stones of the altar and the surrounding earth, including the water in the ditch. Yeah. Wow. The people yelled, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. Elijah commanded the people to take custody of all of the prophets of all. They did. He ordered them to take them to the Kishon Valley where they were put to death. Elijah told Ahab, you better go grab some food and drink. There's some serious rain coming. The sky turned black. Ahab Ahab jumped in his chariot uh, and took off for Jezreel. God strengthened Elijah. He ran in front of Ahab's chariot all the way there. Upon arrival, Ahab reported to Jezebel what had happened and how Elijah had ordered the killing of her prophets of Baal. Jezebel sent a message to Ahab with a threat. May God, my gods, will get you for this. By tomorrow, you'll be dead as my prophets. Elijah ran for dear life to Beersheba, far to the south of Judah. After journeying for a long while, he collapsed in the desert. He cried out, I'm done, God, take my life. Having nothing left, he collapsed and slept. And an angel woke him up and said, get up, eat. He found a loaf of bread and a jug of water. He ate and he slept again. The angel of God came back once more, shook him awake again and said, get up and eat. You got a long journey ahead of you. He got up, ate, drank, and started walking. He walked for 40 days and 40 nights. Sounds like a Camino. If anybody is interested in a Camino, let me know. Anytime I can work that into a teaching, I will. He walked for 40 days and 40 nights. And from the northern kingdom of Israel to the southern kingdom of Judah, all the way to the mountain of God. It's about 480 miles, approximately. The mountain's called Horeb, and you might recognize it. It's also known as Mount Sinai, where some very important things happened with God. There he went into a cave, now we're back to the text, and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to the death with the sword. And I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. What are you doing here, 
During this exchange between the Lord and Elijah, God asks this really powerful question. What are you doing here? Elijah, after this amazing confrontation that we just read, this, this battle between him alone and the prophets of Baal, and upon receiving the threat from Jezebel, he's struck by the position he now finds himself in, right? Does this prophet of God, did, did he not take comfort in the demonstration of power that has just occurred? Did, would he not just stand his ground? No, right? He flees. 400 plus miles to the south and hides in a cave on Mount Sinai. Very human, right? When asked, Elijah tells God why he's on Mount Sinai. As the last of the prophets, he fears for his life. God knows. He knew it before he asked the question why Elijah was there. He also knows what Elijah witnessed, right? He did it. This display is awesome power. And God, in his wisdom, uses the situation to teach his prophet and us thousands of years later about himself. As Elijah stood on the mountain, he looked again for the Lord in the places of dramatic power. He looked for God in the wind. He looked for God in the earthquake. He looked for God in the fire. But God wasn't there, right? God uses this moment of solitude to reveal a truth about himself. Yes, he as the creator almighty can work in absolute power and can work in spectacular ways. He also works in the quiet spaces. In his book, The Prophets, Heschel again asks a profound question. Has anything of significance in the realm of spirit been achieved without the protection and the blessing of solitude? What are we doing here, right? The question that, asked, that God asks Elijah is a good one for us to ask ourselves on a regular basis, right? What am I doing here? I mean, sometimes the answer is, are you crazy? Get out, <laughs> right? What are you doing here? Why am I here? What, what motivates me for being here, right? Here at Liminal, you know, why are we here? At work, at home, all places in between, Am I motivated uh, by the desire to be a good partner, right? A good family member, a good friend? Or am I motivated by my town, my community? Or am I in this place because of my own selfish desires? Or perhaps it's because of fear, right? I know that for many of us, we have had moments in our life that are, are profound, where God's power, I dare say, maybe not to the degree of lightning coming down from the sky, but I know I can go back and think of moments in my life where, wow, God really came. But those are, honestly, I'll be honest with you, they're soon forgotten, often. I really have to purposely try to recall those moments, even though I've had them and I've lived them. And it was the same for Elijah. I don't know that we're that much different, other than unless you're hiding your office, we're not prophets, right? that he did a very human thing, he responded to fear, right? How about us? We all spent the last season with a whole lot of that going on, right? And I'm not so sure it's over. I don't know that it'll ever be over. There, there will always be fear around us or things to fear. For some of us, right, it's still hard for us to leave our respective homes. <laughs> I mean, I know as an introvert, 
that whole thing changed me personally, right? Suddenly, I found my four walls very comforting, and I have had to push myself to come out. That's just full disclosure. We are called to reach out and be a part of a community with all its challenges and its blessings, right? We are not called to run and hide, to stay hidden from our fellow humans indefinitely. How, I ask the question again, how different from Elijah are we in this? Do we look for God in the dramatic, the powerful ways, and forget he is there, always surrounding us, especially in the places without distraction, right? The quiet places. If we would just take the time to put ourselves in that space and listen. God calls us to the practice of solitude. That doesn't mean being alone. Well, it does, but for a moment. The idea of solitude, solitude doesn't have a time limit. It's just a practice that you have to spend time in. Now, I love the idea of a silent retreat for like days on days. You could talk to the two people in the front row about that. I don't know if I could be quiet for that long. I talk to myself. My wife's always like, somebody else here? No, it's just me, right? I don't know if I could spend three days. But we are called to that practice. God calls us all to the practice of solitude, a posture of waiting and quiet that includes him. What does God sound like? A still small voice. A still soft voice. A gentle whisper. A sound of gentle blowing. A sound of sheer silence. A light murmuring sound. A sound, thin, quiet. A delicate whispering voice. A quiet, gentle voice. A quiet, gentle sound. A thin silence. According to different translations of the scriptures, this is what Elijah heard. I submit for us that this is what, more often than not, God sounds like. Take that in for a moment. You join me in a word of prayer, and I'll ask the worship team to come up. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this place, for this space, for the chance to uh, hear from you, Lord. We, uh, we offer ourselves, we offer our worship, and we thank you. We ask you to bless this time, bless this place. In Jesus' name, amen.